Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Well, good morning, church. How are you? Good morning, and uh, I do bring greetings to you from Yash, Romania. That's where I was last week uh, when I wasn't here. Uh, had a unique opportunity, got invited back over uh, to teach a seminary class uh, to some young students, uh, young ministers, elders, and churches. Uh, there's really not a whole lot of uh, evangelical education, period, uh, in most of Romania. Uh, and so the school we work with is creating a new spot uh, to do that. So I got uh, called over to teach that class, but uh, also got a chance to preach in the Christian school that we partner with, an international school, preach at two churches on Sunday, talk to other groups as well. It was a whirlwind trip, uh, but a blast. Uh, and I appreciate you letting me uh, have a chance to go uh, over there to be a part of that. Uh, Yash is a city of a half a million people uh, where less than half of 1% is evangelical Protestant. Uh, and so walking around a, a city that looks a lot like Birmingham with tons of college students and going to the mall and walking down city streets, it looks like a city much like ours, half a million people, very few uh, evangelical Protestants, folks who just walk daily with Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's great that we get to partner with them. And so uh, I do bring you greetings from there. Uh, last week, I had a unique experience um, uh, during this service. While you guys were here worshiping last week in the 1045, at that exact moment, I was 5,000 miles away preaching in a Pentecostal church from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, in Yash, Romania. So we're going to start doing two and a half hour services now. I thought it was fun. Uh, <laughs> Something I picked up over there. No, uh, but I, it was a unique experience that while I am preaching, I knew that I, I would, there was this link between my brothers and sisters here as we're linking with brothers and sisters there, different language, different place, uh, but a link nonetheless. It was a cool uh, experience, but thank you for your prayers. Thank you for allowing me to go, uh, but I am very excited to be back uh, with you today. Uh, hey, before we jump in, I want to prep you for something we're going to be doing later in this service today. Uh, you can tell we're going to be participating in communion uh, as we do often here at the church, but we're going to do this a little bit differently this week. Uh, if you have been a part of Double Oak in the past, you know that uh, usually during communion, uh, unless it's Monday, Thursday, uh, we actually br bring the elements to you. Our deacons would come forward and actually serve you seated at your chairs. Uh, today, we want to try something new, uh, where instead of us bringing the elements to you, I actually want to invite you to come forward and receive the elements. So we're not going to have uh, people bring it to you, but at an appropriate time, I'm going to show you how. In just a second, we're all going to come forward to the table where you can grab uh, the, uh, the bread and the cup, take it back to your seat, uh, and then you can partake there uh, whenever you feel ready. Uh, now, now, why uh, would we do this? Well, look, this, this offers us some new opportunities for worship. Uh, I, I do think there's something valuable in making a conscious choice to come and receive the elements. To literally move your body and say, I want to come and receive what Jesus is giving to me. And so you're going to have that opportunity to come and to actually come forward and to grab these elements. And then as you come to your seats, uh, we would usually partake all together. But instead, I'm going to allow you to, to partake at your leisure whenever you get to your seat. But that gives you the opportunity to maybe sit and have a moment with the Lord to pray as other people are singing before you partake of the elements. Also gives you an opportunity to partake with your family. You might want to sit there and have a moment with your family all together, with you and your wife or you and your husband, uh, you, or even just you and your friends. You might want to have a moment where you can, uh, in a small group, maybe have a moment there together. But uh, we're going to allow you to, to partake on your own instead of all of us partaking in one exact moment. Uh, but let me show you how this is going to work, because uh, you, you might say, how, how is this going to look? Uh, and don't freak out about the arrows. Um, <laughs> 
I know it's a lot of errors. We tried different ways of making it uh, clear, but uh, just go with it. It'll be fine. Uh, so uh, look, here's how it's going to work. If you're in these center sections, you're going to come to the middle, okay? We're going to form two aisles. There's two stations. You're going to come receive the elements, and then you're going to go out the opposite way and then come back in your seats. If you're over in this section, you're going to come to the middle, all right? And there's going to be an usher to let you know when you need to come. You'll come to the middle, receive the elements, and then go out by the wall to get your seat. Same thing over here. You guys will come to the middle, Come to get your elements and then go out by the wall and then have a seat back in your seat. Make sense? Does that make the, okay, maybe not. But uh, you kind of see how that goes. Now, you might say, okay, Adam, this is great, but what about our brothers and sisters who have got some mobility issues? What about them? And look, if you've got some mobility issues, say, Adam, I can't come forward and do that. What we understand, we are going to have two deacons who will be floating. They're going to be serving our tech booth, uh, our prayer room, but also anybody in the room who just can't uh, make it up here or that would be difficult please just raise your hand and we're going to have some uh, ushers who, or some deacons rather who will come and serve you there at your seat. We don't want anybody to feel like they, they can't participate today. And if you do have a gluten allergy, we've got gluten-free um, uh, pieces of bread at the back. You can grab those before you head back to your seat as well. Uh, and so hopefully you, this helps us understand kind of what we're doing that prepares us for communion uh, that will partake right at the end of the service. Uh, I'm excited uh, about just some new opportunities for worship uh, that we'll get to experience today. And I'm excited to do that with you. But grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 is where we're going to be today as we finish out our series called Walking Through the Valley. Uh, it is never fun to have to really talk about pain and suffering, but what we've learned in this series is that it's inevitable. Almost everybody in this room has already gone through a period of suffering. You might be there now. And sadly, we will all go through more periods like that. And so hopefully as we end out this series, you find yourself more prepared uh, to know what to do, how to handle a season of grief or suffering when it inevitably comes. Romans chapter 12 verse 15 is where we'll be in just a moment. While you're returning there, I want you to think back on maybe a couple of those times of suffering or grief in your life. And I wonder if there's anybody there with you. As you think about those times of suffering, I wonder if there's somebody there who, who comforted you. Somebody who helped you get through that season. Maybe it was your spouse. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a best friend. It could also have just been a stranger or somebody you didn't expect that the Lord sent at the proper time to help you in the midst of your grief. I will always be eternally grateful and thankful for brothers and sisters that the Lord has sent into my life, some who I expected, but others that were really surprising, that at the appropriate time or the right space, the Lord put somebody in my path to help me move through my grief and my suffering. And this is a special gift that the Lord gives to each of us. And so as we round out our series, uh, we're going to learn, and not only that we will have to go through our grief ourselves, but also we are going to get the privilege of walking with others through their grief too. So look at Romans chapter 12, verse 15. One verse, very simple. And listen to what it says. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, I would encourage you to underline that verse and not just the portion that you like. Because this is a very straightforward verse. It holds two commands and they're very easy to understand. But one of them is a whole lot easier than the other. The first tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. And that's fairly easy, is it not? 
When somebody is rejoicing, we don't envy them this. We are excited for them. We, we, we want to champion them. We want to encourage them in their joy. We even want to share in their joy. When people are rejoicing, man, we rejoice with them in their joy. But Paul gives us a, a concurrent command where he also tells us to weep with those who weep. And let's all be honest, that's just a whole lot harder, isn't it? I like to rejoice with those who rejoice, but I don't know if I really enjoy weeping with those who weep. I mean, nobody enjoys weeping, period. And especially when it's not even my pain I'm going through, I'm supposed to have more pain. I'm supposed to weep with those who weep. And the Lord tells us, yes. He is calling us to come alongside our brothers and sisters. And when they go through pain and suffering, we are not simply to pray for them. Uh, we're not simply to, to kind of bow our head or shake our head and say, man, that's terrible. But to literally enter into their pain with some of them and say, I want to weep with those who weep. But that's hard for us, isn't it? We have learned throughout this entire series that we are terrible at this. Americans are terrible at grief. We really don't have a whole lot of rituals for this, and it just makes us uncomfortable. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. And so for most of us, rather than jumping into people's pain or finding ourselves entering into people's suffering, we feel an opposite temptation just to run away, just to get away from it as quickly as possible. Just say, listen, listen, I, I'll pray for you, but do your thing, man. Okay, you just do your thing, but I'll, I'm gonna be over here. But what the Lord calls us to do instead is to enter into that pain, to say, you don't do this alone. I'm gonna weep with those who weep. And so this morning, we're gonna look at two examples of this in scripture, two illustrations, one negative and one positive that hopefully is gonna help us to learn how can we effectively come alongside one another, our brothers and sisters, and learn how to weep with those who weep. Let's start with a negative example. And for that, we can look at the comforters of Job. And if you want to turn here, I'll put it on the screen, but we're going to go to Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. You may know the story of Job or you may not, but this is a story from the Old Testament where God tells a story of Job, who is the most righteous man on the planet. He does everything well, but Satan comes to uh, the Lord with an accusation and says, well, of course Job loves you. Look how much you bless him. You give him all this stuff. Anybody would love you if you gave him all this stuff. But you take all that stuff away, and I bet he sings a different tune. And so the Lord allows Satan to afflict Job. And in short order, Job goes through the worst calamity I think most of us can probably fathom. Literally within a day, he loses all of his children. He loses all of his livestock and his wealth. In a later episode, he, very soon after that, he's going to lose his health. He does not die, but he loses his health. He's lost his, uh, his, uh, his accolades in society. He has literally just in short order lost everything, even though he is a righteous man. But Job has some friends. And look what they do here in Job chapter 2, starting at verse 11. It says this. Now, when Job's three friends heard all the, of all this evil that had come upon him, they each came from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept and they tore their clothes and uh, their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. 
And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. When these three men come to comfort Job, they rush to his side, but they cannot even recognize the man that they once knew. That's how deep his calamity is. And right here at the beginning, these guys are actually doing really well. They start off super strong when it comes to comforting other people. They do two things really well. The first one is this. They weep right alongside of him. Do you notice that? They tear their clothes. They wail. They weep. Job's weeping. These guys weep. They don't just say a prayer for him. They go, wow, that's hard. They say, no, they, they get into this pain with him. They weep with him. And then here's the second thing that they do. They didn't say a word. Did you catch that? Look at verse 13. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. They just sat with him. And this is unbelievably powerful. Don't ever underestimate the ministry of your presence. What it can mean for you just to be with somebody without answers, without words, just to be with somebody. These guys spent seven days, not, a, not an hour, not a few hours, seven days. They just sat there because they saw how great his suffering was and they didn't know how to explain it. And so they just sat with him. I think there's always going to be this constant need in us to say something, to, to, to try to fix it, to explain it, to fill the air. I, I, no one is more afflicted with this than me. I don't know if y'all know this, but I talk a lot, all right? I am aware, all right, of how much I talk. And look, when I get into situations like this, I feel this temptation to, to say something. And look, that's kind of my job, too. Like I'm trained, I study the word, I come alongside people in these things. I think people sometimes look to me for those kind of answers. And so I feel this, this, this expectation, whether for me or from somebody else, to say I should, I should say something, but that's not always the best thing to do. In fact, it could be the worst thing to do. Years ago, uh, one of my roommates, back before I got married, uh, went through a terrible breakup. And I knew it was terrible, and I found out it had finally gone down, and when I finally got home, uh, I found him sitting in our, our living room uh, with the lights off. He was just sitting there. And I knew his heart was broken. I knew everything was terrible. And look, in those moments, I, I, I feel the need to say something. I do. Um, and, and the Lord did a miracle in my heart uh, because instead of jumping in and trying to comfort or console or say something, I just sat on the couch without turning the lights on and I just sat with him for three hours. They just sat there, and we didn't say a thing. Now, I did not sit quietly in my soul, because even during that time, I'm thinking I should probably say something. This has gone on for a while. I should probably do something. I mean, this, what could possibly be happening? But I didn't. I mean, literally, I think it's a move of the Holy Spirit to keep my mouth shut. And my friend told me later on, he said, he said Adam, that was by far the, the greatest show of friendship you've ever shown me and that you just sat in the room silently for three hours. I saw him recently for the first time in a really long time, and we were just catching up, and he brought that incident up again. He goes, that was, that was one of the greatest things you've ever done as a friend. It's just to sit for three hours. It didn't say a thing. It didn't solve anything. It didn't fix anything. It didn't explain anything. The ministry of our presence does so much more than you could ever understand. 
So these guys sat for seven days with Job. And after that, everything kind of goes off the rails. Because after this, they do the one thing they probably shouldn't have done. They open their mouth. And the rest of Job is really this argument between Job and his comforters because Job is not okay. Job is going to lash out. He is angry. He is depressed. He is frustrated. He is sarcastic. He curses the day he was born. He wished he had never been born. He, he demands things of God. He is throwing out accusations willy-nilly, and these guys feel a need to defend the Lord. They say, well, you can't talk about the God that way. You can't say things like that, Job. I know you're hurting, but man, you can't go that far. And they begin to kind of jump in and to give him an explanation to say, okay, Job, I think we know what's going on here. Uh, and I think we know what's happening. Clearly you have sinned. And if you will just confess your sin, then everything will be fine, right? Because this just can't happen. This many bad things can't happen to a person and not, not have to have a cause. And so clearly, Job, you just need to confess your sin and then you will be okay. But Job hasn't sinned. Job knows that. God knows that. We, the reader, knows that. But these comforters are now trying to explain the situation and defend the Lord. And in doing so, they are messing everything up. Because what they are espousing is not really the love of the Lord. It's not even the sovereignty of the Lord. What they're really expressing is karma. An Eastern idea that basically says you're going to get what you deserve. Whatever you get in life, you deserve it. It's based on what you have done. You're going to get karma. And the Lord is not happy about it. At the end of all of this, and when the Lord does answer Job, he actually answers these comforters as well. And in Job 42... At the end of the book, look what he says here. Job 42, starting in verse 7. It says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now that is weird. Because look who the Lord sides with. Not with the people trying to stick up for him. Not for the people who, who are trying to speak well of the Lord, but for sarcastic, depressed Job. God says, no, he didn't sin in what he said. I got words with him too, but he did not sin in what he said. But you guys sinned, and here's why. Because you put words in my mouth and you made assumptions that were not true. And listen, this is a strong temptation. It is an incredibly strong temptation to invent a reason why bad things happen. Listen, this happens all the time. We feel this. This is just, it's a, it's a gut urge. It'll happen almost any time we hear about a tragedy. Think about it. When you watch the news and every third second they tell us about a tragedy somewhere in the world, how do we react? When you hear about a, a child dying or, or this terrible tragedy or a shooting or, a, or, or an incident or an accident or, or this thing, 
Whenever we hear about that, there's this thing in us. We, we don't even, we're not even trying. This thing in us that begins to work out an explanation for why that thing happened. Well, they live in that side of town. Well, they live in that country. Oh, they live that kind of lifestyle. Oh, they were engaged in that kind of activity. And since I don't do any of those, and I don't live on that side of town, and I don't live in that country, and I don't do those kind of things, it's just not going to happen to me. That's, this is why that happened to them. It's because of these reasons. But because of those reasons, and I don't do those things, or I don't live there, then it won't happen to me. Do you see what's happening? When we deal with tragedy, it terrifies us because we wonder if it could happen to them, it could happen to me. But surely there's a reason why that's not true. And so we invent one just to comfort ourselves. This isn't even about comforting somebody else anymore. It's really about making us feel better. But those things are not true. We are inventing things that aren't true. We're just trying to understand something we can't understand. We're trying to deal with our own fear of our own mortality or just the, the brokenness of the world. But in doing so, we put words in God's mouth and that is not true. And what ends up happening is, is that not only do we deceive ourselves, we become Job's comforters. And we begin to say things about the Lord that just, that are not warranted at all. And look, I have done this in my life before. I, I imagine many of us have done that. You might have heard these things yourself. Listen, the title for today's sermon is Mourning with Those Who Mourn. But I had an alternative title uh, for this sermon. It's called Let's Stop Making It Worse. Because for some of us, instead of comforting others, we say things that make it worse for them. How many of you have been in a situation where somebody tried to say something spiritual to you when you were grieving and it was terrible? How many of y'all had this happen to you before? Don't point, that's very rude, all right? But it happens, it does. People say terrible things that are not true. Things like this, well, you know what? The Lord just needed him in heaven. That's why this person died. The Lord just needed him in heaven. Seriously? How do you know that? Newsflash, God needs nothing. He needs nothing. He is not lacking in anything. He needs, how can we tell a spouse, a, a child that the Lord needs your dad, your mom more than you do, needs your spouse more than you do? The Lord needed him in heaven. How, could, how did you know that? How could we say that? And how is that possibly comforting to the person who still has to deal with the laws? And it's not true. It's just it's just not true. I get the sentiment. We're trying to say something comforting, but we got to think about these things. We're turning into Job's comforters. I've heard people say this. Well, you know what? If just one person got saved at the funeral, it was worth it. Well, if just one person gets saved at the funeral, it's worth it. How? How is that an even trade? How does that work? Wait, because one person died and one person came to faith. It's like a null set. Is that, is that what we're saying here? That God's going to kill somebody just so somebody else can, can, can be, we say, that's what, God, that's what happened here and we know this? How can we possibly say that? And people say, no, I don't want to, what I mean is, is that, look, the Lord's going to use it. Maybe, maybe he's going to bring something out of it. I, I agree, but we got to be really careful with our words. We got to be really careful because if we just say that, what that means is, is that God basically said, listen, I know you guys suffered and you're going to have loss for the rest of your life, but I needed this thing over here. And their salvation or their joy or their happiness or their help just matters more than your pain and your loss. That's what we just unintentionally, unintentionally communicated. And that's not comforting. 
So look, let's get very clear. So well, then what are we trying to say there? Look, there's a difference between redemption and intention. There's a huge difference between redemption and intention. It is absolutely true that God can bring good out of evil. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That God, what, what the enemy means for evil, God can absolutely t- turn around for our good and for his glory. He does it all the time. He did it through the cross. He's done it all, all throughout history. What the enemy tried to do in an evil way, the Lord says, even though you meant it for evil, I can turn it around and actually turn it into a blessing. That is a redemption of what the enemy is doing in the world. It's a redemption of the brokenness in the world, but that's not the same as intention. Look at the story of Job. God does not intend to inflict pain upon Job. Now, he allows it, certainly, but it is not his intention to purposely afflict him. Now, he redeems things out of it. He draws Job closer to himself. He's going to bless him later on. And yes, he's going to use this story to impact billions of people throughout the ages. But that was not the intent of why I am doing this. He can redeem things without intending to do them. If we said that, then God would basically be saying that the ends justifies the means and God doesn't do that. He says, no, but what the enemy means for evil, I will redeem for good. And so, yes, God can bring salvation at a funeral. God can bring good out of loss and tragedy. But that doesn't mean that he intends those things in our lives. Do you see the difference? It matters in how we comfort people and what we're saying about the Lord. Here's the third thing, and I haven't heard this as much in our congregation, but I do hear it out in the, the wider world where people say, well, you know why this national tragedy occurred? You know why this natural disaster has occurred? It's because America has left God behind, and he's punishing us. That's why this has happened. Pat Robertson was always king of this. Do you ever remember him doing that? This is why this hurricane has hit America. is because America took God out of schools, and so God is punishing us with a hurricane. Seriously? Seriously. How does that work? Did you get a word from the Lord about that? I don't think you did. That God's going to take a storm and indiscriminately slam it into the country because somebody passed a bill in Congress? How is it that we don't interpret all natural disasters this way? Because whenever tornadoes run through the South, Pat Robertson is silent. It's only when a hurricane hits New York that America's being punished for our sins. What are we doing? We're just making stuff up. We can't put words in God's mouth and assume that we understand what these things, oh, what, what he's doing. We can't. We're becoming Job's comforters. Or have it even something like this, where we simply say, God is on his throne. God is on his throne. You say, Adam, how can you be mad at that? I'm, I'm not mad at the statement, but we need to think about when we're saying it. Because that's, absolutely true, but is that actually comforting in the moment to somebody who's experiencing deep loss? Because if all we say is that God is sovereign, if all we say is God is good, what we might be doing is, is we're pitting his sovereignty against his fatherly love for us. And God doesn't pick one or the other, he's both. And so just picking one of those doesn't actually comfort us who are in the midst of grief. I don't know if you've experienced this before, but I did a while back, I was going through a, a dark period of myself. I'd found myself in, in some depression. It was, it was a rough period of my life. And I had some great friends who came around me and, and supported me in that time. But I was hanging out with a buddy of mine, and I went over to his apartment. 
And when I got there, uh, he, I, I, he went to the back for some reason. On his coffee table, I saw this book by John Piper uh, about mourning or, or grieving. I forget the actual title. It's about suffering of some kind. And so I said, well, while I'm waiting, I'm going to pick up and, and read this book. And you guys know I love, love to, to read. I love books. Um, but this has only probably happened two or three times in my life. But I read three pages of that book, and I chucked it across his living room and made sure it hit the wall because I was so angry at what I read. Now, let me be clear. I didn't disagree with the word he said. His theology was sound. Everything he said was fine. But what he wanted to start off with was simply that God is sovereign. It's all going to be good. So you're good, right? And in that moment, what I said to myself was that John Piper is an amazing theologian. And he is a terrible comforter. Because in that moment, I already knew that. He wasn't comforting. What I needed to know was that God was with me in this moment. And so we can't simply say part of the truth. We, we, got, to, we got to jump in and say, no, I'm going to tell the whole truth of not just God's sovereignty, that he's good, that yes, he's going to fix this in the end. Yes, we believe in an afterlife. Yes, he's going to pull all things right in the end. I believe all of that, but I also need to know that he comforts our hearts in the middle of it. And when we come alongside our brothers and sisters, we must do both of those things, not just one or the other, or we end up like Job's comforters. So let's look now at a positive illustration. Let's look at how Jesus responds to those who are suffering. Let's go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 17. And in John 11, we are hearing a story we've mentioned multiple times throughout this series. It's the story of the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus and his two uh, sisters, Mary and Martha, were uh, close friends of Jesus. Lazarus comes down sick. The sisters send for Jesus to come heal him, and Jesus doesn't come. Lazarus dies. And when Jesus finally does show up, he's done this on purpose, by the way, He knows exactly what he's doing. When he shows up, Mary and Martha are understandably grief-stricken. I want you to notice how he responds to them. Let's look at John chapter 11, starting in verse 17. It says this. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews who had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus did not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, 
he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could he not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. I'll stop right there. I would assume that many of us know the end of this story. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And this is not an impromptu decision. It's not an emotional response. He had planned to do this from the beginning. But we learn three things about Jesus' emotional state in this passage. Go back one slide. Notice here in verse 33, here at the bottom, two things you see here. Uh, It says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and then greatly troubled. Then go to the next slide. And then it says here in verse 35, it says Jesus wept. Then down to verse 38, he was deeply moved again. So three different words, deeply moved in spirit, greatly troubled, and he wept. These words are interesting. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but this word for deeply moved in spirit, uh, it has less the idea to do of weeping and more the idea to do of of being angry. Like like the snorting of a horse, angry. So there's some element of anger in the Lord. You might be saying, well, what's he angry at? And we don't know. He could be angry at the unbelief of the Jews around him. Uh, He could be angry at what death does, period. Uh, He could be angry because his friends are weeping and how it is causing them uh, to hurt. It could be all of these things wrapped up into one, and I would imagine it probably is. The word here for weeping, by the way, is different. Uh, This is not this wailing and this open kind of wailing. Instead, it's more of like the silent grief, almost like you could just kind of see it racking him of just, it overcomes him, but this weeping that he's experienced, and he's also greatly troubled in spirit. You got all this stuff rolling around in the heart of our Savior. What an amazing picture, because this is God all over. A God who is absolutely angry at sin, a God who is absolutely angry at death, of what sin has done, of the evil it has wrought, of the the death it has imposed on people that he loves. He is wrathful against sin, but he is so compassionate. When he sees the weeping of his friends and even the weeping of other Jews, he joins along with them. He weeps right along with them. This is not a show. He enters into their pain with them. He is the God who is sovereign, who's going to fix everything, who had already planned to do so, but at the very same time, the God who knows that in five minutes he's gonna fix it. In five minutes, the funeral goes into a party. In five minutes, it's all fine. He doesn't say, listen, hang on, I got this. He enters into their weeping with them. What an amazing picture of the grace and the goodness of God. That though he is the, though he is the God who lives in unapproachable light, who knows all things, who sees all things, who who is already at the end, who is making all things new, who could easily say, hey, well, just hang on. When you get here, you'll understand. Even though he has it all under control, he at the same time comes and weeps when we weep and mourns when we mourn because he loves us and he cares for us. And he experiences this right alongside of us. What an amazing picture of the love and consolation of the Lord. And so I want to give us four or five things that we see in what Jesus does that can help us 
to also weep with those who weep. The first one is this. Don't just tell the truth, weep. Don't just tell the truth, weep. I, like many of you, still want to say the truth, want to say the right words, to reaffirm the the truths that are correct. And there's going to be a time for that. But we don't just tell the truth. We also need to weep with those who weep. When was the last time we, we just sat quietly? When was the last time we just were there with somebody and we didn't simply say, hey, I'll pray for you because I was uncomfortable with their grief. I didn't want to be touched by their grief. But we actually allowed ourselves to enter in with them. Look, I know that's scary. See, Adam, there's so much weeping in the world. Would it ever stop? Listen, you're not called to carry everyone's grief, but when it's somebody you know and you care about and God gives you the opportunity to walk alongside somebody else, yes, we enter into their pain. We have to carry some of that. And we weep with them. They need us to weep alongside them, just like Jesus mourns right alongside Mary and Martha. We need to weep. Look, especially at first, there's going to come a time for speaking, but especially at first, we need to lean towards weeping more than speaking. There's got to be wisdom exercised in all of this, but at the very beginning, we always need to be leaning more into, hey, let me just be with you here. We need, don't just tell the truth, we need to weep. Here's the second thing. Don't just weep, tell the truth. Don't just weep, tell the truth. While we weep with those who weep, we also don't just mourn with them. There does come a time where we tell the truth. Martha gets told the truth in this moment. She's at a place where she can take it. And we do need to speak the truths of God's word, to remind people of the truths of God's word. Why? Because sometimes people will get stuck in their grief. I've seen this happen with, with people. They get so wrapped up in their grief, they just get trapped. They, they can't turn ahead. They, they're always looking backwards and they just get trapped in a loop. They get stuck. They can't move forward and they just, they just live in it. And yes, these people need to be encouraged to see that while grief is real, the Lord can move us through it. There is a hope. There is a future and we have to move forward in that. It's a slow process. It takes time. But we need to remind people of those truths. And look, you might not feel adequate for that, but man, just telling people, man, God still loves you. God can bring good out of this. God's not going to let you go. God can heal you. These are things that must be said. And look, they need you to say them. I've had periods in my life where I've been through darkness where I just didn't know what I believed anymore. I didn't know where to go or what to believe. But I had a lot of really good Christian friends And what I realized was on certain days I would wake up and realize I don't think I believe anything, but they do and they love me. So I'm going to rely on their faith today because I don't know if I have any of my own, but I'm going to rely on theirs and their faith carried me through. I leaned on their faith to get me through that day until I could pick up my faith again. Dave talked about this last week in his sermon of just being so encouraged by hearing the songs of the people around. If you didn't hear Dave's sermon last week, it was amazing. Please go back and listen to it. You did an amazing job. But hearing the songs, this happens every single week in here. You might be here today and go, I don't believe anything. I, 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 people think I'm fine. I'm not fine. I'm not okay. But you can hear the songs of the people and say, okay, but they believe and I'm, I'm gonna listen to them. I'm gonna rely on their faith today. You can't just weep. You gotta tell the truth. Thirdly, you get a... Uh, 
We have to weep or mourn differently with different people. You mourn differently with different people. It is one of the most amazing things to me that Jesus in this passage hears the same complaint, the exact same complaint from two people and gives two totally different answers. Did you catch that? This is the God of the universe. He's never wrong. He's the only person who can say, I know what to say here. I have the answer. I do understand. He's literally the only one who can say that. And he does not give a stock answer to everyone. Instead, he gives two different answers to two different women. Do you know why? They're two different people. You can read the rest of the Gospels. This is not the first time we run into Mary and Martha. And when you read those accounts, you find out very quickly these are very different women, even though they're sisters. Very different women. And so Jesus meets each of them individually. We cannot assume that the things that helped us in our grief will automatically help everyone in their grief. Just because it helped you doesn't mean it's going to help everybody. It also doesn't mean that that something that works for one person will work for everybody. It doesn't mean that the way your wife or your husband or your kids are going to grieve is going to be the same way that you grieve. We're different people with different temperaments and backgrounds and history and experiences and personalities. And praise be to God that he meets us in all of our individuality and mourns with us where we are. We got to learn to do that with people and help them as they move forward. Here's the fourth thing. Focus on being rather than fixing. Focus on being rather than fixing. I know we would all like to explain it away. It would make us somehow feel better, but we can't. We don't have the answers, and we can't fix it. Here's the great news. You're not expected to. And the person who's grieving doesn't expect you to either. Let that take the weight off. The person you're comforting is not under, they're not expecting you to fix it for them. You can't. They know that. You can't bring their loved one back. You can't fix their marriage. You can't make the diagnosis go away. But you can be there. You can just be there. And can I encourage you to be there not just for the first two hours or the first two days before the funeral, but we need to be there two weeks later and two months later and on the anniversary when the grief wave hits us. Just be there. Send them a text. Let them know, hey, I'm praying for you today. I'm thinking about you. I'm lifting you up. I want to encourage you. Your presence, the ministry of your presence does so much more than you, can, than you think it does. And then finally, pray for them. Just pray for them. I hope that doesn't sound trite. Your prayers are so unbelievably powerful. Look, I can't fix my own heart. I can't fix anybody's heart. Neither can you, but the Lord can. And when we lift our friends up to the Lord, our loved ones to the Lord, we say, God, you understand the human heart. You know how to help this person. You can actually walk walk them through in ways that they can understand and I can't. But I want to lift them up to you. It is so incredibly powerfully encouraging for somebody just to reach out and say, hey, I'm praying for you. I love it when you folks say, Adam, I'm praying for you this week. I need it. It never gets old, ever. And so pray for them. Let them know you're praying for them to remind them that God has not abandoned them and will not. What would happen if all of us in here, we became a community who said, I want to learn how to mourn with others who mourn and to do that well. Listen, I'm so glad this is not something we're starting. I've watched you guys do this for years. I've seen it in hospital waiting rooms. 
where you have showed up to be with people in their surgeries or to comfort them or to help them or to call them and, and their loved ones who drove in to, for the surgery are watching all this going, who are these people? And they go, oh, that's my church. Who are these people? Oh, that's my community group. Who are these people? Those, those, those are my brothers. Those are my sisters who love me. And they're the ones bringing food. They're the ones walking with you. They're the ones standing next to you. Not only does it encourage the person in grief, it is a witness to the world of who the Lord is in us when we learn how to mourn with those who mourn. 